On this week's episode, Mitch Gold joined the podcast to have a discussion around seeking discomfort, vulnerability, and so much more. I'm really happy that Mitch reached out and decided to come on the podcast. He's so articulate and had so much to share. I know I learned a lot. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Mitch Gold, welcome to the Don't Worry About It podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. When I first started this podcast, you know, there's people in my life that I've spoken to in the past about so many issues that led to what I believe the created this podcast and types of discussions. You're somebody who actually came to mind. So um, to get to have you on, you know, after I think this is going to be the 27th episode is like a real, it's like really cool for me just to um, set that goal. When I started knowing like there's certain people I've spoken to and to get people on, I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah, just I first want to say congratulations on creating so many episodes. I think that's a an amazing feat. And yeah, I definitely think there are people in our pasts that um, we connect to right away. And you can kind of tell that that you, you're able to have amazing conversations with. And I think you are someone over the last few years, you've, intermittently, we've been able to do that. So I'm definitely excited to be here and, and have this conversation. Yeah, I think also something that I think that was really cool is, you know, I put out the challenge at the end of every episode. If you're open to coming on and sharing your story, if anybody's out there has the courage or just the openness and willingness to do it. And, you know, you reached out to me and I was super excited, but I'm curious to hear, like, what is like, why did you decide to take why did you decide to reach out and why come on the podcast? It's an amazing question. Um, It's uh, I think a multifaceted answer, but uh, really, um, I think it has to do with our generation uh, being a little more open to the fact that mental health is no longer taboo and it's something that should be talked about and something that should be dealt with. And I think with uh, Corona, um, then the virus kind of reaching globally every part of the world, it was kind of a unification uh, universally where we were all able to see this is something that we're all dealing with. This is something we all need to focus on. And we were able to see how that lack of connection and, and the lack of being able to um, to live our lives uh, created a kind of mental health uh, situation that everybody is able to understand and focus on. Yeah, I think COVID, so, COVID changed everything. But I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about, you know, I, I, I see how it impacts the world and I see how it interacts with other people. I'm curious, you know, how does, how has it impacted you? So I think that, that because of all of the impact that it has had on the world, um, it's enabled me to, to have an understanding that this is something that should be spoken about. Um, and I, as I said, I believe we all have dealt with these issues and that's something that I've dealt with and not necessarily always have seen as mental health issues necessarily labeled that way. But as you've kind of shown everyone that uh, no matter what you're doing in life, whether you are healthy uh, or stable, there are mental health issues in terms of everybody is anxious, everybody is depressed. And I think uh, something that I've I've been trying to connect to recently is just being a little more open and trying to facilitate, uh, as you are doing, a little more vulnerability to the world. And I think it's a good idea to share my perspective um, with other people and hope others can do the same. Yeah, you brought up um, 
the taboo of it all, right? You know, stop the stigma, uh, mental health awareness and all that stuff. You know, it's something I, I believe in. Um, but I've been having a few conversations privately with, with, with people that, I, that I've been speaking to. You know, they mentioned about how taboo it is. And I'm curious if that ta- where that taboo is coming from. I know growing up in the modern Orthodox Jew- like Jewish world, it seemed to be more taboo there. But, I, you know, you hear about it in the general world. I don't know if it's better or worse, what the real difference is and, and how it's really stopped people from communicating it. I think it's on the part of me feels it's. I don't know how, I think it's just more on the individuals to find people that they can create spaces with. But then again, there are, I have also spoken to people that, that have answered me saying, yeah, but I don't have the support system. I can't talk about it with family and friends. And that's where I've kind of had to take myself out of the equation and be like, just cause I've been able to do it. I didn't realize a lot of people weren't able to do it. It's been a very surreal realization on my end. Mm-hmm. And so I think that stems uh, the the taboo, I believe stems from, Uh, As I said, I think it's generational because with the progression of science, you have the progression of psychology and the understanding of mental health issues and the understanding of the influence of our personality, our environment, our nature. And I think if you, let's say, look at the 50s where it was taboo to go to therapy, it's because how much of, of therapy was really scientifically proven and as correct as Freud was with 90% of everything that he learned, there were still certain things um, when you look at neoanalytical psychology that may not be true. And I think 100 years later, we're able to prove or disprove some of the, the science that enables us to realize these things are are not crazy as as they used to think 70 years ago, but are pervasive and true. And I think what you're saying is is such a a potent point in in terms of community. And there's a YouTube channel called Yes Theory that I've been listening to. And it's three guys in Venice Beach. And they kind of just try to perpetuate the idea of community and a stranger is a friend that you haven't met. And they give people uh, money to quit their jobs and, and travel or pursue dreams or to, to have human interaction. And I think the idea of what you're talking about of some people don't have that support system is another reason why I want to come on to this podcast, because what Yes Theory has shown me is that there are thousands, if not millions of people who are looking for support systems and looking for connection and all we really need to do is just reach out a hand to find someone who's searching for almost the exact same thing we are. You know, that's a really, it's a really good point. I, it just popped into my head, but I was thinking, you know, if you ever look, if you ever walk around, you see two people potentially sitting on a park bench. They're strangers. They don't know each other. And both people can be so close and yet so far away. They can both be searching for somebody to talk to. And yet they have, a, they have somebody that's just six feet away from them that's ready and maybe he's ready and open and willing to engage and they don't do it out of a million, a million reasons why not. You can think of a million reasons why not to, and the fear of somebody else not opening up to the idea of opening up to a stranger in and of itself. But I think that there's just something incredible about like that kind of photograph. You could take it illustrates a, a lot of pictures. And the point of what I'm, I think I'm getting at is um, I think you, you nailed it on the head. Um, a lack of community. I think it stems a lot of um, anxiety and a lot of struggles and mental health can stem from a lack of purpose and a lack of meaning. Um, and that really can make you feel lonely. When you feel lonely, you feel low. When you feel low, causes a lot of other issues. And 
can be really hard to get out of that negative roller coaster. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite memories of exactly what you're saying is I was sitting on a bench in Madison Square Park in New York City, and I was waiting. I was working in a bar at the time, and I was waiting for my shift to start. And I would usually pick the same bench and read a book. And this one day, there happened to be an elderly individual, probably 70 to 80 years old, sitting next to me. And I just decided to start speaking to him. And his life story was going to the American army and moving around the country. And, and it, it, I walked away with a smile on my face just because of that sense of connection, that sense of story. And I think what you're saying is, is so true in that there's so many times where we're sitting next to people uh, and we just don't reach out. And I think that may stem from a sense of rejection, which I, I know at least I feel and I've heard many other people, if not as a human condition, we all are afraid of being rejected and afraid of being vulnerable. And I think that a lot of times stops us from reaching out to that person next to us, even though they might have the exact same desire that we do. There's a lot there to, to, digest, to, to digest. I think just the idea of sitting and sitting next to someone and, and, and even thinking about, you know, just talking to someone, what if they say no? What if they're like, leave me alone? It's like, it's, you, there's a sense of, of vulnerability when you put yourself out there just even on that small scale right it's a stranger if it doesn't work out you'll you odds are you'll probably never see them again but even still it can feel very real and the double-edged sword is that you might by taking that risk or that gamble you might actually be treating yourself to something that you actually need connecting with another human being no matter how smart you are no matter how leveled thinking you are and i'm someone who's as guilty of this as anybody i've spent a lot of years thinking and you know, eventually you come to the realization of you can't think of every solution on your own. You just don't have access to all the information. You're not smart enough. No matter how intelligent you are, you need to interact with other people to learn. You need to live life. You need to experience things. You need to experience good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, all of it. Until that's kind of the way that you develop perspective. But I think there's another level um, to the vulnerability. And I want to, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. You know, a lot of people, um, I've studied um, vulnerability a lot. I thought it was a big issue of mine. I'm not 100% sure if it is or it isn't anymore, because I've just gotten more confused with learning more about it. But I think that there's something scarier about um, rejection. And that's, ex- and that's what if somebody, uh, what if you open up to somebody, right? You tell them all about you, whatever, and on a large scale. And then they understand you, they hear it, and they accept what you say, but then they reject you after, right? It's like they understand all of it, right? They really do get who you are, what you're saying, and they disagree with it or they reject you. It could be on a lot of different levels, but that to me is a lot scarier than the, than the initial rejection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vulnerability is an extremely tough issue to deal with because we all want to preach vulnerability yet none of us actually want to open ourselves up enough to do that. Um, and I think that that is a very uh, tough experience, what you're saying, and I'm, I'm sure we've all gone through that, of completely opening ourselves up and just still not being wanted. And uh, I think Amar Kandil from Yes Theory, ha- uh, he says this, and I think it's very good quote. He says, rejection is just redirection. And I think that is true in terms of, You are not any less valuable because someone else did not want to partake in your life. I think that 
th- that's what's scary about rejection is feeling that who we are is less valuable. And I think that's where a, a sort of self-consciousness and self-confidence can come into play because it's, it is just a redirection. If you talk to anyone who's dated or who has found their, their spouse or significant other, how many people have they had to date before that? And I think that's the most intimate experience one can have with vulnerability and rejection because when you're looking for a significant other, you're, you're looking for someone to love you completely. And I think that so many times we want something and we get rejected, but it really is a redirection towards a different place in life, which usually leads us to being more happy. I reject, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the line. I think that there's a lot, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a nice like bumper slogan to me. Rejection is, is, is just redirection. I'm not sure exactly what it means because to me, it sounds like something nice you say to someone and then you kind of leave it and then go, what the fuck does that even mean? And, and from, from when I hear it, I think, you know, like I, I get like the redirection, right? If somebody rejects you, it doesn't have to mean that there's everything's wrong. If you don't have to do a 180 and change your entire approach, it's okay for somebody not right. If you're trying to make a new friend, someone doesn't want to be your friend. Like it doesn't have to be a whole, you don't have to change everything about yourself because you're, va- you're not less valuable because one person doesn't like you. And yeah, I think it's that idea of, of of the sense of it's not just you're saying that to make yourself feel a little better as you're saying a bumper sticker rejection is just redirection oh no she didn't like me or this person didn't like me so therefore uh, I'm not going to change everything about me but I think it's much deeper than that in terms of we all are are deathly afraid of rejection and if we can see it as not a hindrance or or a hit towards who we are and not not thinking about changing at all, but rather having, which is why I said self-confidence in that what just happened has nothing to do with uh, who I am or the value I put on myself or my life or my principles. It's just that person has a different life. There are almost 8 billion people in the world. To say that we are going to be able to get along with every one of them is, is almost laughable. So I think in those terms, you could look at rejection as having a conversation and someone doesn't want to speak to you or trying to create a friendship or a relationship. But just because that doesn't work out or you are rejected, it, it doesn't have anything to do with how valuable you are as a person. And if you can inherently integrate that value and self-confidence to who you are, I think you can truly see it as a redirection and walk away with a smile on your face because life is still good no matter what. Yeah, I think, listen, I, I think I get it more. I think reject, you need to use rejection under the lens of redirection, right? Exactly. But, but rejection isn't redirection. Rejection is just what it is. It is rejection, right? Mm-hmm. It's, there is, I think, in its bubble, right, in, in its user case, if it's a relationship, if it's a friendship, and it doesn't work out, that is somebody rejecting who you are. And that, that, that's why it hurts so much because it is real. It's not fake. It's not, that is somebody rejecting you for who you are and what you are. And that's if assuming you've shown every, right. That's the scary part, right? It's like you can, it's much easier to lose or to be rejected if you didn't try, right. You didn't do everything you could do. Then you can go in a lot of ways. It's easier. It's like, Oh, I I could have done so much more. Right. We have regrets. It's, oh, I could have done more. I wish I'd done more. And like, everyone's like, live with no regrets. Well, there's a reason why people regret a lot of decisions. And it's not only because it's the human nature to do it, it's because that's 
it's a, in my opinion, I think it's a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that's why that, that it's a hundred percent true. That's why it reminds me of the saying, it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. Because what you're saying is true in that at the end of the day, rejection is rejection. They are rejecting something about you that they don't want to be around, which is intimately painful. But I think it's, it's that idea of it is better to have loved and lost. It is better to have had that experience, uh, whatever it may be, it's better to, to be vulnerable. And I think it's something that I've experienced in my life. Uh, My parents got divorced when I was around 13, almost 14 years old. Um, And thank God, my mom, my brother and I are very close and we've learned to become very communicative and articulate people. But throughout that process, I realized I'd been creating uh, almost an intellectual wall around myself that enabled me to justify almost anything. And I realized almost very recently, which is why I've also been trying to work on vulnerability, that I was not having experience. I was not experiencing certain things because of that wall. I was not allowing myself to love. I was not allowing myself to to uh, grow my relationships and and to have personal growth. Because when you create those walls, you create distance between yourself and experience and life. So I think it is definitely true that rejection is rejection. But I think it is better to have loved and lost because as you're saying, it's better to have tried because rejection is something we all fear. But I believe the experience in that's something that I was lacking for a few years, uh, my ability to open up and to, to give the proper energy towards my relationships. I think it's much better when you can give and have that experience and walk away with it than to have not had it at all. And I think this actually ties in really brilliantly to something I actually just learned yesterday in terms of psychology. Carl Jung very famous psychologist in 1918 gave this thought experiment. If you have two identical twins and you have looking at from when they're 20 years old or or 10 years old and then move forward 10 years, one of the, the twins has read 10 years of books and researched and the other brother has read nothing. Now you have both brothers completely wipe their memory. They have amnesia you will still be able to tell who has read those books. That knowledge is, is experience basically actually fundamentally changes your, your biology, your DNA. It is coded into your DNA when you experience something. And I think that that just shows that the experience is worth it. Even if you can't remember it, or even if you do get rejected, you walk away as a different human being, literally biologically and in terms of personality, you, you walk away a different person. It's a very powerful idea. And I think, listen, I'm sold. I I believe, I I agree with you there. I think it is for sure. I believe, and I I don't know, believe maybe I know that it's better to do one or the other, but it really depends on what your goal is, right? If you're somebody who's hurting the goal, and if you want to make your goal to live pain-free, then maybe you are better off. And I'm not saying for the end goal, I think to be, it really depends what your goal is. If it's to be the happy, it's, if it's to be happy, if it's to be, satiated if it's to be fulfilled then you have to risk right then there has to be risk involved to get that to get there right you can't you can't get you cannot get to a scale on a scale of one to ten on the happiness sad scale ten being the happiest one being the saddest to be able to get to the ten you need to be willing to risk to feel zero 
Mm-hmm. I, th- I, I think so. I really, I really do believe that. I, somebody, I, I don't remember. I wish I could credit them. So it's not my idea, but somebody else said it. To, I read it somewhere, listened to it somewhere. I don't know. But the range of scale of happy, right? If you're a single person, the scale, what you believe is the happiest you can be and the saddest you can be is probably between like a three and a seven. Say a four and a six or a three and a seven. You, th- you think your seven is a 10 because you're limited to how happy you can be. Then you start dating, you you get mad, you find the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you find that thing. Now your happiness scale goes to a 10 to a zero. Now you add something else that's even more valuable. It's if, depending on the person, obviously, but let's say it's kids. Now the scale is out the window because you can feel as happy as 100, but that same thing that can make you feel as happy as 100 can can cause you the, the, the below zero of hurt. Same thing with Matt, right? You, you, you can only feel the happiness if you can, if it can actually be the inverse and, and, and lose and to get it. And that's a very scary very scary idea to be able mm-hmm. to like i know personally like for me like my goal for a while was when i was miserable and, and super low and it was just i was like i don't want to feel ever feel that low again so i just, just tried to do whatever i could to live in the middle that means i was never really that happy but i was never that sad and i really learned how to control it for a while at least i, I when i say i learned how to control it i thought it's all in my head it wasn't real I mean, I didn't hurt as badly, but I definitely wasn't that as happy as I thought I was. So for a lot of that, it kind of made me realize that the only way to actually feel better and to actually get get to where I wanted to go, I had to turn back the faucets on and let the emotions come out and to risk it. I'm still in that process, obviously. It's a work in progress. But, you know, a lot of what you said um, leads me to the um, a big word that I know we're going to talk a lot about today. And besides for vulnerability, and that's um, discomfort. You brought mm-hmm. up, you brought up, uh, I'm going to let, I'll give you a chance to, to elaborate on anything there, but it leads me to the, the thing that we definitely share a lot in common, but um, guest theory, um, as you brought up, seek discomfort is something that their that's their slogan, right? It's their, it's their um, battle call. It's their everything. It's what the, it's their essence of what yes theory is, is to seek discomfort. And there's a lot there. And I'm curious to hear how it, what your thoughts on it, how it impacted you. I know I left you a lot to, to respond to and i apologize yeah no that's great uh seek discomfort is is uh quite a good battle cry i think if you can call it that i think that um exactly what you're saying in terms of sacrifice i think works with seek discomfort as well and that most people are living in between that three or seven right in the middle uh exactly what you were saying and i think that is an okay way to live if you really if you have an extremely painful life if you want to be living in in that state of for lack of a better word, monotony. Um, but yeah, I think everything needs sacrifice. And, and that brings me to seek discomfort. I think the idea of seeking discomfort is directly sacrificing your comfort. And so that that idea was extremely, um, it's, it, it was a really uh, a, revelatory almost sorry for looking for a word there uh thing to hear and see through their videos of being able to get out of your comfort zone we have our routines and we have our comfort zones that we usually sit in but when one can actually step out of the monotony of one's life and move to that zone of discomfort you you start to see uh different things uh, how you react to different situations and and you can meet people. And I think we are all isolated, whether you're coming from a religious background, whether you're coming from a, a private school background, whether you're coming from a certain state, we're all isolated and biased in our own experiences. And until you seek that discomfort, we won't be able to know what else is out there. And I think 
seeking discomfort enables one to become more vulnerable and to become uh, more of a open human being. So how did that, once you saw it, how did it, how did you connect it to your life? What, what, what did you do with it? So I think seeking discomfort was something that I was doing prior to actually hearing that message. Uh, my brother and his friends, my brother, Josh Gold and his friends went to Binghamton, but they were the kind of people that lived in the nature preserve and, and were very open-minded outdoors kind of people. And they were seeking discomfort without even, uh, articulating that message and so for me that was something that I started to go after uh, like last summer um, I went to Scotland and I went woofing worldwide organization organic organization of farming and so uh, my friend Mike Katz Nelson and I went and stayed in southeastern Scotland and we just backpacked around and and I think that idea of seeking discomfort was something that I always was acquainted with but wasn't able to articulate um, because staying on that farm was one of the greatest experiences of my life meeting someone who grew up basically with she her words uh, Helga Irvine the, the farmer she said her dad was nomadic and she lived on a farm never in a million years would I've been able to connect with an experience like that if I hadn't been able to go there um, but more recently I think it's just the idea of we see our lines and we live within those and we create boundaries for ourselves. But just like traveling, I think the idea is there is so much in life outside of what we believe to be our boundaries. It's really cool, man. Going to Scotland, doing all that stuff to really get out of your comfort zone. Like a lot of people, myself included, talk about it. It's really inspiring and cool to hear about people actually doing it. I mean, uh, it's just really cool to just actually taking the actions to, to get out of your own comfort zone, to remove yourself from, from situations that you're aware uh, that you're, you know, you feel comfort comfortable in and also get hearing my, my cat's Nelson's name. It's a name I haven't heard in a very long time. It's really cool. <laughs> that part's also really cool. Shout out to my cat's Nelson. Great guy. Yeah. Shout out for sure. Um, I think also something very interesting uh, that's more relevant to our current political environment and, and philosophical environment, which yes, theory tends to perpetuate through seek discomfort is we see so much polarization in our world nowadays, or really in our country, but also the world. I think uh, in America, we have this huge divide of, I believe this, and I believe that. And I think being able to get out of that, that specific block in which we live and seeking discomfort you meet other people with different opinions and you realize that there's validity to the way other people live and and validity to other people's opinions and values and i think that's something that we don't really uh we're not so acquainted with and i think something that yes theory talks about is if you seek discomfort you tend to meet those people and and they went uh thomas bragg one of the guys from yes theory had the opportunity to go ask the Dalai Lama one question. And he asked, there's so much anxiety and depression that young people experience nowadays. If you could whisper in the ear of all these young people, what, what would you say about that? And his answer was, there's, there's this sense of ego going around, this sense of, of 
I'm better and, and a holier than thou with everything. And I think social media and technology, it, it enables us to focus on our, our egos. And he said, if I create boundaries and, and if I'm looking at my identity, like I'm the Dalai Lama, I live in Tibet, I do this, I do that, then you're just creating more and more lines and more separation between you and the other people in the world, even the other people in Tibet or, or wherever you live. And I think the idea of seeking discomfort is to to push past that. The Dalai Lama's message, and he said what he practices every day is altruism, to, to be kind towards others, because it lowers that that wall of of ego of of I am this and you are that and my opinion is this and yours is that and it's really just get outside of your comfort zone and you can see that we're a global community and a human community and I think this relates back to mental health and the idea that we're doing this entirely is that it, you know you're facilitating a, a human struggle and, and if we can see that as as a global community rather than me and you then the world may be a, a better place. And I think you can start by just seeking a little bit of discomfort. The Dalai Lama's advice, I think hits home for, for many. I know it hit homes. It, it hits close to home for me. It's ego is a huge part of, of, of what I think causes struggles. Um, I think you need a healthy ego, but I think you need to be very, I think it's a tight, can be a very tight light, uh, tight line to cross. Um, kind of have to play it in the sense of where you can't believe you're nothing but you can't believe you're everything it has to be a, a happy medium and it's really hard you know a lot of um, advice people get is you know you need to have self-confidence um you need to be right false. some people like i look around and i see like um false con- you see a lot of false confidence in a lot of people well at least what we it looks to us to be false confidence and there in and of itself is the problem it's judging of others it's 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 paying too much attention on other people instead of focusing healthily on yourself. There's a, a line there too. It's like focusing too much on yourself and a negative can be a, a huge negative, but focusing all on everybody else can leave you really without an identity. Um, who who are you? Who am I? What do I believe in? Are I think questions that really plague a lot of people. And I also think you need to balance that out by stop. Th- sometimes you just need to stop thinking about it and just go do something. Right. Go do, I, the biggest thing I, I, I try to do is if I'm in a rut is to try and do something for somebody else um, in any in any possible way. It could be as simple as reaching out to somebody um, just to see how they're doing. It could be a donating um, money to a cause that I believe in. Just something that's not 100 percent. That's not all about me. Always, not always, um, sometimes can just can 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 do a trick, can do the trick. Um, it, remi- it grounds, it can ground you, can remind you that there's more in the world than just you, even though at the end of the day, life is in a way a single player game. A hundred percent. I think that reaching out and doing a little kindness is is an amazing thing. And there's a joke in one of the Friends episodes, actually, where Phoebe dare, or Joey dares Phoebe um, for whoever hasn't seen Friends, go watch it. But um where Phoebe Joey dares Phoebe to find a good deed that she'll do that doesn't make her feel good as well. And mm-hmm. I think the ultimate joke is obviously you can't find something like that because doing good makes us feel good. And I don't think that is something wrong. I think you're doing good for others while making yourself feel good. It's mutually beneficial. Um, but something that hit 
really close to home, which is what you were saying about balance. And that's uh, something, for lack of a better word, if you want to say a motto that I've been trying to use in my life. Uh, in my second year in Israel, I was at a yeshiva called Derech uh translated to the path of the tree of life. Um, and so they were big proponents of the Rambam, Maimonides, who lived uh, 11 to 1200s. And he is a hard rationalist, but the way he sees the world is that you should go to extremes to find your medium. So ultimately, his message is balance. And so for me, my, my motto has tried to be balance. And it's created, as you said, it's, it's definitely plagued me over the last five to seven years because uh, there have been people around me where I've been in yeshiva and they uh, school in Israel and they, they preach a certain sense of responsibility, a certain way of life. And then I have, let's say, people like my brother or friends who are doing such amazing, meaningful, open uh, traveling and seeking discomfort and experiencing things in the world that are so important and something that's given me a lot of uh, it's been a big struggle for me in my my past few years was trying to fuse those two things and and to create balance from how much can I travel and and can I be open versus uh, you know accepting a certain amount of responsibility on myself whether that is a job or whether that is being religiously observant and I think the idea what you're saying of balance is something that at least plagues me and I'm sure many other people of of thinking, as you were saying, is thinking about yourself versus thinking about others or thinking about two ways you would like to fuse your your own philosophies. And I think being able to balance these things is not is not easy. And I have not I'm closer to finding a holistic way of living, but definitely am not there yet as finding a balance for one's life is an extremely hard thing to do. It really is. It's funny. I was just talking with a good friend last night about 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 similar topics, and you know, I I, I don't know. I don't think I agree with what I'm going to say fully, but it's sometimes I think about it a lot. Is it worth it? Are are we are you better off questioning every like so many things? Is it is it worth it to you know question everything? Or sometimes are you just better like I look around at somebody like I'm somebody who questions a mil- like asks a billion questions. That's what I do, right? This is I'm doing this podcast. I reflect, but I mostly I just try and ask questions and in, in, in whatever ways I know how. And then you know you don't always get all the answers, um, and, which creates uncertainty. And you kind of can run. You can kind of get very lost in that um, in this like mind gauntlet that you set up for yourself. That everything has to check all these different boxes. If I'm religious, I have to do that well i also know i'm supposed to i, I i'm doing this it's combine the secular the belief your secular beliefs with your religious beliefs how can i live a life that eventually balances it all out and sometimes i'm, I'm just curious are, are people who i look at people who are like so dedicated like don't even doesn't see don't appear to i don't want to judge but like don't appear to think twice about a lot of things and they just kind of commit fully to one idea to an ideology to one thing and they just kind of look free they look happy they just seem happier to me and i always mm-hmm. wonder am i better off would I have just been better off just committing fully? And listen, uh, after all that said, I don't, I don't fully think that's true because I think at the end of the day, everyone's got their their trials, and you don't really know ever really know what's going on in their heads. But it, it just feels easier. Like this this whole thing where you just think overthink things and get so caught up in balancing all this out. It, like you said, you've been doing it for five to seven years. I, I can't remember a day in my life where I haven't been trying to do it. 
and it just it it, it can be really tough. Yeah, so I think there's a a medium, again, balance. I think I try and apply it to everything of thinking, but not overthinking. And and when I say that, I mean there's a a great book called Name of the Wind by an author, Patrick Rothfuss. And there's a quote there where he says, if you give a man an answer, all you give him is a fact. If you give a man a question, he'll search for his own answers. And so I think that, that hit me very deeply because it's the idea of, you, you shouldn't just be dogmatic in your life. And, and as you're saying, committing to one thing is not necessarily being dogmatic. There are multiple ways about going about things, but questions are important. You shouldn't just look at something as an answer and integrate that into your life because you agreed with it right away and that's how it is and, and you just don't ask. Nor should you be overly analytical and think about every single step you take in life. I think that the idea is to kind of question uh, your surroundings enough to be able to give yourself a sense of, of what your life should be about. And I think that being able to, to question things gives you a better, a better sense of that. Yeah, I think, I think something I, I've definitely learned a lot by doing this podcast is that, and something that, that I've been taught, you know, I think you're always going to have more um, questions than answers in life. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you should stop asking the questions. It's like kind of like the um, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. Give mm-hmm. give somebody the answers. Give somebody all the answers. They never really learn. Teach a man how to really think. They'll they might not ace your test, but they'll ace their own. Like they'll exactly. know that you'll figure out. You listen. Some people get too caught up in it. And there's plenty of people that get way too caught up in the gauntlet and then they lose themselves in it. I've, it's a fear I've had. And it's, it's, it's definitely been a real feel fear of mine. Um, sometimes it's just like, sh- just shut the, like, just shut up, stop thinking, stop talking about mm-hmm. it, go do something. And that, that yeah. helps, right? Overthinking can cause a lot of anxiety. Um, and if it's causing people a lot of anxiety, you need to figure out a way to, um, to find more, to focus more on, on, on that discomfort and why, what's causing it. And then to, you know, kind of do the work to get out of it. If it's causing you too much, it's not, you don't have to solve it. You shouldn't be trying to solve every question and, and find every answer at once. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay. It's okay to live in that discomfort. It's okay to not have all the answers all the time. And, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up on the spot, right? When they, especially when you interact with others, it's like, oh, what do you believe in? It's like, I'm, it's like, it always reminds me of like this common interaction that I always found to happen. It's like, when you go back and forth with someone, you have to like have the answer like really quickly. Oh, well, what do you have to say to that? And then they answer really quickly. It's like, well, now, what's your point? And then, like, sometimes the person, one person gets, like, caught. They, they don't have the quick answer right away. And then everyone in the crowd goes, oh, I, like, the other person won. And then, like, if I'm the other person, it's like, do I get a chance to, like, think for a second? Like, do I have to have the perfect answer always on the spot? Do I, really I think always- the inability to pause before answering is one of the great detriments to our conversations. I think exactly what you're saying. To take, if we were able to take a second or to allow others to take a second to formulate answers, I think we would all be having much more meaningful conversations. And I think what you're saying in that, I, I like I got anxiety from that as well of overthinking things. And, and I would overthink things to the point of, well, if I'm pursuing truth, I need to question everything to the point of until I can find an answer that makes sense to me and do all these things. And I think at the end of the day, for me, what ended up just happening was, you can't 
see like to me the pursuit of truth was such a noble pursuit and you see it throughout centuries and and millennia and then at the end of the day it's like just are you happy and i think it's the idea of what you're saying of it leads to anxiety and this overthinking and at the and how i've been trying to integrate it including seek discomfort is to not overthink all these things and just pursue what makes me happy does what i'm doing does what i'm thinking about make me happy not am i pursuing something noble for the fate of humanity because i'm one person in a billion nobody honestly cares about my pursuit of truth nor will i probably make a dent in in the world because very few people do that in all of human history at the end of the day you just you like i've just been trying to do what makes me happy and this process as you said it's like taken a lot of years it can't have always been it definitely wasn't always easy or I'm sure you've had a lot of trials and a lot of struggles. Can you tell me a little bit about what struggles you've had to overcome? Like, were there any low points? How'd you get mm-hmm. out of them? How'd you get into them? Yeah, that's, that's definitely uh, something that needs to be unloaded. I think that um, stemming from coming from Yeshiva in my second year, I left with this sense of, of responsibility. I think that's, that's where that pursuit of truth, quote unquote, uh, came from in that they, they taught this, uh, they taught really well how to, the, how to create a context and a framework. And as you said, how to think, um, they definitely taught their students how to think instead of just giving them answers. But that also led me to going to YU, Yeshiva University, because I felt like I really needed a Jewish environment, a religious environment after that. And my rabbis and teachers were all pushing me in that direction because they just assumed that anybody that didn't go to a school like that was never going to be religious again, which mm-hmm. is, of course, an outrageous opinion. Um, so for me, I ended up going to YU for two years. And in those two years, it was not such a great time. I did not connect to the learning that was going on. I didn't want to be there. I didn't really connect to the people that were there. Um, so for me, the the time that was there, I was kind of pushed into this area because a lot of other people had thought it was right for me, which again has been a pattern in my last couple years of just doing things because it's expected rather than because of a pursuit of happiness. Um, and so I went to YU and I ended up just smoking a lot of weed and and staying in my apartment and staying in bed, not going to classes. And I think it stemmed from not being able to pursue questions, not being challenged, not pursuing happiness. And so for me, that was a a pretty low point, um, just in that life kind of lost its color a little bit. I, I definitely would not call it a depression at the time. I don't know that anyone would like to do that. Um, but looking back, that's definitely what that was. Um, and then towards the end of that two years, I really kind of just broke down in terms of I was living for so many months in a place that just did not bring me happiness. And as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, community is such an integral part support is such an integral part of uh, mental stability and and mental health and happiness and having people around you that you feel uh, share your vision or at least support your vision for reality and for life. Um, So for me, that was a really 
tough situation to get out of. Um, I don't know that I would have been able to do that if the school hadn't come to me and said, listen, we see that there's something wrong. Um, you should probably figure this out. Uh, in <laughs> You know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, right. but that led me to uh, a, a sort of realization that things were not going right. And Steve Jobs has a quote where he says, uh, if you wake up too many days in a row saying no to your day, then you know there's something wrong. And I think that was a part of that, I realized just after some time. And I think it wasn't a self-realization. It was a school having to be active about it and say this is not going well, that it made me realize that I was kind of stuck. And so at that point, I had decided to uh, I wanted to to move to Israel and go to IDC, which is a uh, an international school in Herzliya in Israel. And so I decided they, it was a communications major and I had been an English major. So I decided to go to community college for the year because they had the major I wanted and I was going to go to Israel. And through uh, this was was just getting out of my lowest point, I would say YU is probably the lowest I was and so I decided I would take my life and, and kind of put it into something I'd want because I had been happy in Israel and that I decided I was going to try and pursue that. But so again, it wasn't... so uh, I'm sorry, I just wanted there's a lot there and I want to. Yeah, yeah, I apologize. I just part. No, no, no. It's just it, I just I think a lot of people can relate to a lot of what you said. I think just I, before we get too far into it, I just want to break down, give some context. So you're in D, you're in this yeshiva, you're away, you're you're away from home for the first time you're living in an in an international country um i don't know what your language skills are but it's a big adjustment right for especially mm-hmm. kids who come from the modern orthodox jewish community it's a pretty big adjustment right we're kind of living on our own for the first times so i know i spent two years um in reishi and i wouldn't say they taught us how to think so much as they i i listen i have a lot of a lot of um a lot of great um, I'm very grateful for for a lot of things that that my school did, but I I wonder if you had these similar experiences. Right? I just could so relate when you're talking about how they said you don't go to Yeshiva University, you're not going to be religious. Well, they spent our first year telling us if you don't go to Yeshiva University, you're not going to be you're not going to make it. You're not going to stay stay religious to their standards or whatever standards that you've taken upon yourself in while you're in Yeshiva. And then the second year, they convince you to go back. They start telling you if you go if you go to Yeshiva University, you're not going to be religious. You have to go to um, you have to go to a, a Yeshiva in America or to Turo College Landers program learning. And I'm not going to say whether they're right or wrong. I, and I personally think they're wrong, but I'm not going to. For a lot of people, it works. And I just look at my own year. I went to Yeshiva University. It, it did not work out for me. I made it. I, I went post Passover. I made it six weeks, and then. I had to leave. I had to take a mental leave of absence. My anxiety and depression was so crippling that I had I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't meet their even minimal requirements that they were even allowing me to do. It just wasn't going to work. And it's just I always think about like how crazy it is for people to tell you who have emotional power. They know how much power they have over you. Tell you you're not going to make it. And if you and if you're going to make it, you have to go here, only here. They're already putting you in a box. It's an immense pressure because right, you get to those schools and. It's not what you want it to be. You're not finding your support system. You're not finding people you can relate to or, or a rabbi that you can connect to that you just had. And now they're telling you, now, you, now your whole existence is kind of predicated on, on these things. And it's like, well, now it's not working. What else isn't, what else what isn't true or not working? It can cause a huge identity crisis. A hundred percent. And I don't want to say happy to hear, but it's, it's cool to hear that you had an almost identical experience uh, because that's, 
that's very much how I experienced it my second year there. Thank God I had a good amount of self-confidence while I was still in Israel because my head of my program, my the Rosh Hashiva actually, they, they had gotten into some, uh, we can call it issues with YU. So they were right. very unhappy I was going there. And he had actually looked me in the face and told me to go to YU was flushing myself down the toilet. And that was quite a harsh thing to hear from anybody. But thank God, as I said, I had self-confidence and I kind of just laughed and said, that is, that's funny, but also I'm still going to go there. I don't really care because as you said, he was suggesting uh, other American uh, religiously observant programs. And for me, it was, that's, that was not what I wanted to do. So why you was kind of the compromise, but yeah, I, I think it's something that, they were stressing that if we don't do that, you will not be religious, you will not be this or that. And, and I think you hit it right on the head in that I did have a identity crisis as well after that, because you start to realize, well, if this, as you said, if this wasn't necessarily true, then what else can be? And thank God I've, I've learned, as I said, to fuse uh, that sense of religion and travel and all these things a little more in the last really only a few months, but it definitely was a, a huge crisis of identity in terms of what do I want to do? And if these things are true, then what does that mean for everything else in my life? And that definitely led to, uh, you know, whether it was living with not religious people wanting to be religious or feeling not wanting to be feeling that I didn't really want to be religious and at times still practicing. And, and it was really just a, an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different values that just put me into a space that was not so healthy. Yeah. I just, I, I can, I can, I can really feel, you know, your words, it, it hits home. I think it's going to hit a lot of people. Um, and, and that way I think a lot of people can relate to it. I don't think it's only specified to the modern Orthodox Jewish religion at all or any institution. I think it works with any system of beliefs or any religion that, that kind of goes on. If you predicate yourself on, on the, the one, the one thing and these people that you put on a pedestal and, you say you're greater than that, and they tell you straight to your face. It's like a self. It's like a self fulfilling prophecy. It's like these are people that are you really that, especially the the head people, like people you've really going to respect, you've connected with, and they're and they're telling you that it's like, what purpose does that serve? So you were, and by the way, they were right for at least for my year. <laughs> I can't speak. I don't know about your year, but at least in my year, majority of people that went to a yeshiva university, they either that made it through became significantly less religious than them what they were, which is not a problem in my opinion. Like what that's <laughs> relevant but a lot of people like had to leave, like left they they went all the way to the all the way to the right and ended up transferring to those to those religious um uh, right there's no causation but there's sure as hell correlation yeah it's like a ton of correlation and by the way like they my, and my point is it's not about whether you were right or wrong it's the power that your words and influence have on people and that's not something that i think that that goes to anyone who's in a power position and also can go to to how we interact and talk with our friends and our parents and and, and people around us, our words have meanings and it can impact somebody in very heavily ways. And if you have influence over people and you know you have that ability, you need to take you. That's a big responsibility and it shouldn't be taken lightly. And I, it really like hits core to me to to see these people like talks in such absolutes. I'm not. And for me, especially my personality, it's like, don't tell me I can't like I'm, it's going to fail. Like and if it did fail, it's sure as hell not. It doesn't have to be because of the reasons you said so. You could be right for the wrong reasons. Like get like for mm-hmm. me, it was like a big turnoff um, and it really hurt my, 
it definitely impacted my my relationship with my own religion, which is ridiculous ridiculous as it is because it has nothing. It's not predicated. It shouldn't shouldn't be predicated on anyone else. It's really left me um, like I haven't been able to really. I never really was a big like find a rabbi and trust them like absolutely person. It's never been my forte, but that's that's my own that's my own shit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I I hear that in terms of of we were 18 years old, 19 years old, the power that let alone people have in general, but over people that, as we said, there was no, like we had an identity, but you're not an adult. You haven't created an identity. Your identity is the things that have happened to you rather than the things that you integrate that have happened. Um, and I think, as you were saying, the, the words are so powerful. And I, that's why I try not to give too much advice right. nowadays because uh, this is something I've been trying to do for a few years, uh, a little unsuccessfully, but I think that we, our words have so much weight and people really, because as, as we said, we need support systems. We tend to reach out to other people. And I think we so frivol frivolously or some people so frivolously just give advice without understanding that this person is listening. Their ears are open and they might do what you're saying. Don't just say things because you half-heartedly believe them. You know, if you're going to change the course of someone's life or, you know, just tell them to do something, you sure as hell should be right about it. And I think a lot of us don't think about the weight that that holds in other people's lives yeah, adv advice is one of those things that um as i've gotten older i want to give less <laughs> the younger i was the more <laughs> sure of myself i was it's like i know all the answers and i there are a lot of times right where i think i'm right while also knowing and i know this like i don't know the actual statistic but i'm wrong so many times also like i'm wrong so often about so many things and especially things that i thought i was right about i'm i can feel so sure and then i find that i was wrong so my win rate is not that high anyway like you, I don't try and give and tell anyone what they what 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 they like what they should do. I don't try and give any like hardcore advice in that sense. I don't. I, my big, biggest advice is you got to do to anybody is you kind of got to find resources and and to find a way to to come to your own realizations. It doesn't mean you can't rely on other people for support. But if you're asking anybody for big life decisions on what you should do, that's where I think you're in trouble. I think it doesn't lead. I don't think it leads to a good path. It's like asking these people in the power positions. Like, what should I do? And having them make your decision for you. Do you want to like go out on your, like at the end of the day, do you want to like go out based off of your, like, don't, don't rely so harsh. Like you need to lean on people, but don't rely. You can't be so reliant on, on other people. They don't have skin in the game. If they don't have, especially if they don't have any skin in the game that where the result doesn't matter. It's like, that's why it's kind of crazy to take advice from people. They don't, they don't, mm -hmm. they're not invested. They're not heavily, really that invested. And I'm not going to take shots at anyone, but like, if you really think about it, even your closest friends, they don't really have that much. Like, yeah, they they care about you. They may love you, but they're not, they're a lot. It's not like a life. It's not as big of a decision for them as it is for you. Like no matter how much they love you and care about you, they don't have skin. They really don't have skin in the game. A hundred percent. And I think that's, that's something I remember from my second year in Israel. Um, and I think it may have been someone where in your program, actually, I'm not, I, I don't want to say just because I don't remember, but my friend Zach Lenick, who has been on this podcast before, um, he had told me he was speaking to one of his friends who didn't know an answer to something. So he went to his rabbi and said, how, how should I think about this or how should I feel about this? <laughs> and Zach and I just kind of laughed and we're like, what is that question even predicated on? Like, what do you mean? How should I think or how should I feel? That's something that 
you just look inside and and you know there's no asking how I should think you just think right and I I think that's that's such as you said an important thing to to understand that that you have to look inside yourself and not just ask other people frivolously for for answers right I, and, I, and and by the way i'll throw myself even more so under the bus i've been both people like i've been the person oh of course we've I've all been, given advice right. no I've, I've i've been that i've been I've i'm been saying the, not also not great advice it's, i've been uh, the person who's asked frivolous those great like how should i what should i do how should i think like i've been that person mm-hmm. i still have I don't think I have as high. I don't know the last time I've done it, but I'm sure I still have a part of me that wants to do that in certain situations because I don't want to accept the responsibility of it. Right? It's a lot easier to right if so, if somebody else gives you somebody if you ask somebody for advice and you follow their advice and it doesn't work out, you have somebody to blame. That's not you, even though you even though you can you the real blame should be you should trust yourself. That but you mm-hmm. know, that doesn't seem to be the thing. It's just very very it's just a very um it's a heavy topic. It's it's not and that, none of this is easy. Uh, people who ask for a ton of advice, it's not, I'm not taking shots at all. I get how hard it is. I've been there. I feel that way. I understand it. 1000, 1000%. I don't want to make it seem like it's, these are, these are not simple concepts and ideas to get to it. It's hard. You have to, you, of course. Yeah. We're not it. trying to be reductionist towards anybody's struggle, right. pain or want yeah. desire to ask for help. I think it's more on the people giving the advice just to understand, uh, the weight of, of what they're doing. And before we get, before I let you continue on this journey of how you got to like, getting to Israel and community college, you talked about, you know, being in a rut. You wouldn't, you didn't then understand that it was depression then, but you feel now that, that, that you were definitely in depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you explain what that was like, what it felt like? Because um, I've, a lot of people I've spoken to don't, don't, and I myself sometimes included, don't really fully understand the difference between sadness and depression. And, and a lot of what entails depression what it feels like sure i i think yeah it's an extremely complex thing in terms of states of mind versus emotions and i think that's something that i've been trying to think about whether it's happiness or depression is what is an emotion versus what is a state of mind and i think depression is not i feel sad right now but it's it's a prevailing state of mind that you wake up with it or you go to sleep with it whether you realize it or not it doesn't have to be at the forefront of your mind Um, and when I say that I mean when I was in YU uh, at that point in in my second year there um, I was living with people that I actually enjoyed for the first time in a while and I wasn't as I said there I enjoyed them and I felt that I was friends with them, but there was no real support system. So my days were kind of made up with watching TV and, Mm. and smoking weed. I didn't go to classes. And I remember so vividly in my apartment with my computer open, you know, with whatever it is I'm doing at the time, if it's a joint in my hand or something. And, And I remember smiling and I, you know, the TV was funny and I didn't feel like this, this heavy blanket. And I know depression is experienced in many different ways, which I'm sure is why you asked also uh, to describe what I was feeling. Cause I remember there were times where I did feel happy and I was able to relate with people. But for the most part, I was in my apartment and I was watching TV and I remember feeling kind of frustrated because the only friends that I felt like the only interaction outside of my apartment, I remember my friend Benjamin brought 
his friends over and we'd hang out. And so I, I felt like I didn't really have friends of my own at the time that were in proximity to me, like geographically, because most of my friends went to Israel. So I didn't really have a friend group. I wasn't really leaving my apartment. I was smoking a lot, watching a lot of TV, napping a lot. So it wasn't necessarily like this sense of wanting to cry at all times, but rather more of I'm just content doing absolutely nothing with my days and not being a productive part of the world. Yeah, I think I think, I think that's a really I think you summed it up, at least from your experience. I, I can I can understand what you're talking about. Um, not only somebody who's gone through um, depression and how it interacted with myself, but just as think you paints a good picture i think you can you can be all of those things and right you can you can have you can have a day where you're not where you're not as depressed as other days and those kind of days like they feel better but the way i've kind of come to understand my own like what depression is and how i view it it's um it's what i it's how i think about when you wear sunglasses but it's not just sunglasses over your eyes it's sunglasses over every of all your senses smell taste really all touch all of it um it's kind of like if you're ever like walking outside on, on a nice sunny day and right, you, you kind of, you're wearing your sunglasses. It's like, Oh, it's not, it's sunny out, but it's not as bright. And then you, if the only way you kind of realize that how, how bright and, and sunny it is or how beautiful it is outside, if you kind of take the sunglasses off and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is what that's, this is what it really looks like. Now, now what if you're wearing sunglasses? Now, what if you're depressed and it's not sunny outside, you're wearing those sunglasses and what's already not as light where it's dark and it's cloudy. It's not as light. Now it's even darker. Then take out what if you're wearing it out when it's really, the sun's starting to set, it's starting to feel a lot darker and a lot blacker, a lot. You really can't really see so well. You, you don't really understand what's going on. You get even lost. You can get even more lost. There's so what I, that's how I've kind of come to understand my depression. And, and, and when I've dealt with it, it's kind of like some days it's not as dark as the others, but it isn't until the depression passes that I understand how bright it is outside. How even when I'm, when I'm eating food, it's like, oh, this, I, this doesn't taste the same anymore. And then when I'm not as in the when I'm not in those states, like oh, that's what food really—that's what it really tastes like. Like whoa, mm-hmm. don't realize you can you can just be having that same day when you're just and you can kind of get into a or that routine that doesn't breed any positive solutions, right? It's the and I related to it, like sitting watching sitting in bed, joint in hand, getting high, watching TV. You might be watching something that's funny and you might laugh out loud, but it's not the same. La- that laughter and that joy is not as enjoyable as it is when you're not in that state. You don't realize it until you're not there. How bad, mm-hmm. and how I, bad I think that's is. such a fantastic analogy of of wearing sunglasses all the time because it's like a it's a good visual representation of real darkness over your life. Um, and I think that it is it is true in that it's not that's what I was saying it's a, a state of mind and not just just a, a fleeting emotion. And I think that's that's something about yes theory um, and seek discomfort that's I've been trying to relate to in terms of of that kind of depression that I, I, I and and it seems you have experienced that they they kind of preach this this sense of human interaction and and trying to to reach getting outside your comfort zone a lot of times are very joyous experiences. And I think the reason I wouldn't think is a depression, which is what we were saying, is because you can laugh and you can feel good, but you don't realize that outside of those moments, you're not really feeling so happy. And I think the idea of perpetuating a lifestyle of vulnerability and openness, 
allows you to get outside of that comfort zone. I think for me, that depression, if if I were to sum it up, is to be staying inside of that comfort zone 24-7. It was, I'm comfortable here. People come to me. I don't have to do anything but turn on my TV or get food delivered to my apartment. And I think it is a very hard thing to recognize when one is going through that, which is why I think it has been so important for me, at least, to look to men, uh, uh, not, not necessarily one mentor, but as it, finding someone who has either gotten through that or is doing something to enable you to, to get through that is an extremely important thing, which is why Yes Theory for me has been so great. And even uh, Zach Lenick, when he came on your podcast, I listened to it and it was such a, an amazing podcast. And the idea that he was speaking about was strength of a relationship and how that has brought him to a really mentally stable and mentally healthy life. And that's something that I've tried to integrate and that, that yes theory preaches a lot as well is that when I was in that apartment, there's no opportunity for connection. There's no opportunity for strength of relationship nor did I have the energy to give to that relationship or whatever relationships or friendships there were. Um, so I think it's, it's the idea of being, and that's why I think uh, getting outside your comfort zone is so important because one is never going to be able to realize that they're stuck in a rut if one doesn't get outside of that small apartment that they've been in for months at a time. It's cr- I mean, you, There's so much there. I, I want to make sure I touch on as many things as possible. First, I'll start with Zach Lennox, incredible. Um, I don't know if I don't know who's better at, at, than him, but I know at our age to be able to articulate himself and his ideas. And and that podcast taught me so much, and and I'm really grateful for him. And and I just want to give him that 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 do. Um, I'm really glad you enjoyed enjoyed the episode. I'm glad I was able to ask <laughs> the right questions to get it out of him because he's he's just that good. Um, yeah, really able to. I felt like I I walked away learning a lot as well. So thank you both for that. And then you know talking about uh, I want to bridge from depression into, in, into some another topic that I think will bridge us into um, into into yes theory and and some thoughts and questions I had for you. But that is. Um, you know, when you create that um, routine, um, it kind of breeds into more into more sadness, more depression, into feeling lower and doesn't allow you to create. You're in a place where you're not able to create anything positive in there. Right. You're getting you're not you're not you're not experience. You can't you're not really allowing yourself to experience anything that can shake up to shake that up. You're you're, you're finding comfort in, in, in the darkness and you're creating You're kind of <laughs> another idea I was talking about with a friend last night is, you know, um, I talk about it all the time, you know, optimizing your life, creating a schedule and a routine and, uh, and sticking all the way through it. And that can be really good, but can also be really dangerous, right. Um, to, to just find, to, to be doing the same things over and over and over again, I can feel really robotic and you can take the emotion out of it. And, and sometimes you get knocked out and you don't have a routine anymore. And it's like, well, what, what's really going on here? And, and I think there are a lot of people that, that, that are like that. And I think that they, when they slide into sadness and they start to get really sad, you may be around them and not even know, like thinking back to your example, right? You could be at an apartment and, and laughing and, and I guess letting out a couple of laughs and, and, and being part of the group. And then, you know, you can, you might even tell some of your, the people around you might, well, could have no idea how sad you really are. They won't know how you really feel. And then you can even worse, right? You might bring it up to somebody. Then you're taking a risk. Hey, I'm going to open up to someone. They go. Mitch, you're not, you're not depressed. You're, you're just, you just need to do this or that. 
you know, you were, we were with you last night. We were laughing. We were watching that movie. We got high. We were we had a great talk. We had a great time. What do you so What do you have to be so sad about? And those are the things that kill. Those hurt more. I, to me, though, those things that people people said those those type of lines to me though those hurt badly. It really killed. Like that stuff really hurt, and it it made it made me not want to ever open up to anybody about what I was going through, and it, it reinforced the bad the negatives about the risk of opening up and being vulnerable. It's like. It really, I wonder if you had any similar experiences there. So uh, thank God for me in that time, I had like one of my roommates was also pretty anxiety ridden. Mm -hmm. So we had each other to kind of just vent about the appointments we were missing and the classes we weren't going to. But I think what you're saying is, if not just in that specific depression, I've definitely experienced that in terms of opening up and someone just saying that it's not valid what I'm feeling, which is, first of all, on the side, I just want to say from what I've learned, which is uh, not much, but, but it seems to be that when anybody is venting or talking to you about something, all they want to hear is, I hear you, it's valid, you know, I, 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 I'm listening. And it's not about creating a solution for them. It's not about uh, invalidating their opinions, but it's really people just want to hear that they're being listened to and that they're being heard. Um, so tangentially, I think that's something that I myself am trying to work on is just letting people feel heard. Um, but something that regards to what you were saying that when someone says, oh, you're not depressed. I think this is a, a dissonance between someone J, uh, named Jason Silva, who's the host of Brain Games. Um, it's a TV show. He's a, a new school philosopher. He's a very brilliant guy. And he splits this up into experience by description versus experience by acquaintance. And I think that first example of what you're talking about is experience by description. And especially because mental health issues are, uh, as with anything mental, it's in our own head and we are plagued by the human condition of not being able to have someone uh, experience what we're experiencing. And I think that when we tell someone what we're feeling when we're depressed, I think it's very easy, as you said, for them to, to say, what do you mean? You were laughing. You were you were here. You know, you, you were good. You were enjoying. Um, so that that can't mean that you're depressed. And then there's experience by acquaintance, which is actually feeling that. And it's it's the way in which we are able to have this conversation now because you've experienced something that I've experienced and we can relate about that. Um, and I think a lot of people when it comes to mental health, whether it's they don't want to admit it or they haven't experienced it, I don't think it's necessarily something that could be experienced by description. Um, and I think it's an extremely tough situation because then you need to find people because then you're, again, balancing that sense of vulnerability versus finding someone that won't invalidate your opinion. Um, so finding the right person, essentially. Wow, that's a really good answer. That's a really, that's a really, really, really good way of saying it. And I think it explains the disconnect, some the, all the disconnect we have. I think starting from, you know, I think, I think it kind of leads back to um, full circle with the Dalai Lama, right? People with ego, it's like, but also more so if people want to be heard, um, they just want to know that someone's listening to them. Some, some, like that's the part of it. Sometimes you just want to let out vent. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to be more than just, you know, words 
doesn't sometimes you just need someone to to say I hear you I understand I I just hear you it's okay like that's it not every not right it's the common trope of uh, men are fixers right men when men mm-hmm. when men and women are you know talking and the woman's talking about her day and something that went wrong the men's like immediately is like I want to fix the problem and the woman's like I just want you just just I just don't need you to fix my problem I just want somebody I just want someone to listen to I don't think obviously obviously those are tropes and I don't I, I every people are different if you're a woman you can obviously be more of a fixer and if you're a man all that understood but i think that so i don't think it has to be so gender i don't think it has to be gender specific and i don't think it works i think it, that's how it creates a big disconnect and you know that person who's saying um i don't want to give i don't want to bash the person who doesn't understand so because they may just be uneducated it's, un, it's it's not so easy either right it's it's hard to to to, to know what to say when someone's coming to you with that sometimes the easier solution is it's not a problem at all avoidance um, um really trying to instead of it and, and it's kind of a big disconnect there's an idea that i've been thinking a lot about and i guess it's now is probably maybe a good time to bring it up but it's the difference between an explanation and an excuse and i think there's a big difference there's a- interesting yeah would you be able to elaborate on that so it's like if you're with I'm trying to think of the best way to bring it up. It's kind of like what, what really, like if you think about what an excuse is versus what an explanation is, they can sound very similar Two, you could say the same thing. And one of them could be an excuse. And one of them can be an explanation of bad, of, of behavior, not necessarily bad or good, but an explanation mm-hmm. of why things happen. It's like, right. You talking to a friend about explaining why you're not feeling well. Right. You could saying, ah, I, I know we did all right. That things, the example, right. I'm, I, I know I was sitting with you guys and, and talking about, and we were talking and laughing and we're having a good time, right. I went to the, I was going with you guys to all the parties. Like I'm in, I used to get out more. I, I'm doing all these things. I'm, I'm socializing. And now I'm, t- I'm explaining, I'm explaining my, why I'm like, why I don't want to go out anymore. Right. Why these situations aren't good for me. And then a lot of times people hear it as an excuse and there's a difference. I'm not exactly hundred percent sure. It's kind of a heft. I haven't really figured out exactly what it is yet it's just on the top of my mind i figured out and you're pretty good at this stuff so i figured you might have some ideas on uh, on it and if you don't we can move on thank you yeah um something that's just literally off the top of my head right now is excuse sounds more like justification Mm -hmm. whereas explaining is just kind of sharing uh your perspective on on where you are and i think that that sense of excuse is it's saying that this is not my fault it's saying that whatever happened is is somebody it's on somebody else or i did this and it wasn't directly the consequences of my own actions that did this versus explaining which is this is what it is and this so i guess you know i get explaining it now articulating it is is making me realize maybe the difference is uh accepting responsibility because I think the excuse is the the justification of this is something other than my fault that I'm going to tell you about versus an explanation, which is could be the same answer, but it's admitting that the responsibility is on me. I, I come to this with a sense of this is the consequence of my own actions and I bear that, but I just want you to know. Right. I think the example that comes into my mind is um, you're late for class, you're late for a meeting or work. And your boss asks you why you late. The bus broke down. The way you mm-hmm, that exactly. that could be the reason. It can be an explanation, and it can also be an excuse. How can it be? If it's a singular time, it can be an explanation. 
I'm not excusing it. I, that's why. That's why I was late. The bus broke. The subway broke down. There's. It feels like there's nothing I could do about it. But what if you're somebody who's late often, and then, then it's true, but it becomes an excuse, not an explanation. If I'm late, right, if you're late, if you're somebody who's late a lot of the time, and then they come and tell you, they already have the reputation that they're late. So even if they come and tell you, it kind of becomes like, well, I guess the buzz did break down, but you kind of get less leeway. It becomes that's where it kind of slips into, and for me, it can. It can be an explanation and an excuse at the same time. Right, 100%. And I think uh, for for that is a, a good lead into also something that I was thinking about, which is just communication. Mm-hmm. Because I think a huge deal in that is whether you're communicating the consequences were, were your fault or whether they were or whether you're putting the blame on something else. And I think communication uh you know, above taking responsibility for yourself, of course, which is one of the main difference in, in excuse and, um, an ex- explanation. But I think that, um, being able to communicate towards one another, that, that properly articulating what you're saying is such an important thing in life. And whether you're explaining or whether you're making an excuse for whatever it is, I think being, and, and in what we're saying, uh, experience by description may not always work, but I think to be able to communicate to the to the highest extent of your ability is is such a uh, a valuable trait, especially when you're trying to explain. Because so many times I've found, especially in the current uh, environment in our world, whether politically, philosophically, we have these. Uh, separate definitions for words, because I could say liberal or conservative or, you know, uh, any of that. And you could hear one thing from that and I could hear another. And we just begin to have a conversation on completely two completely different wavelengths. And we're defining our words differently. And I think that's a pervasive issue now in that if we can just look at how we're defining words and try and, and be more articulate, I think there will be a lot less misunderstanding. Yeah, I think communication plays a huge role um, towards, um, towards the and, things And we specifically, say. actually, mental health. Um, communicating how we're feeling is it's hard, right? It's, it's such a personal experience. But I think and, – and so a lot of people can say, well, how can I explain to you what I'm feeling? You just don't understand. You don't know how I feel. That's a very common thing that I know I've said when I was in the dog – when I was in the, it was when I was in the low stages and the and really the pits, like I would say you like you don't you don't understand, and and a lot of the re, well let's understanding why somebody may not understand is is important. How am I communicating how I'm feeling? How am I communicating what's going on? What words am I using? Am I am I doing a good enough job? And and guess what? What if well then then and also I think sometimes you need to ask the question: What if I am communicating? What if what if they do understand? And they and and now right, I explain how I'm feeling to somebody, and they give me they say something back that I don't like. But so much isn't it so much easier to say they don't understand? It's a lot harder to say they do understand, and and they're saying something, and I say, but I don't like the answer. It's a lot harder to do. Right, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's again uh, confronting uh, a, a different form of rejection, which we all have nowadays, as well as disagreeing with people. But in terms of what we were talking about earlier, uh, way earlier, in terms of happiness, I think, um, as you were saying, when it pertains to mental health, being able to communicate is such an important thing. And, and something that I've been researching recently is a country called Bhutan, which is in between China and India. And it was basically a haven for people that were running out of India or China for many years. And now they are 
supposedly they're coined the happiest nation on earth. And they're actually one of two countries that are carbon negative in the world. And so they created the first, uh, sorry, the fourth king of Bhutan crowned the dragon king, which is super cool. But uh, he created something called the gross national happiness. And to me, that stemmed from a sense of being able to articulate. He took, um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with GDP, gross domestic product of, of what uh, a country creates and, and in terms of economics. So he took that understanding of the things a country produces and looked at the gross national happiness. And so he brought it down to a couple of things, whether socioeconomic or philosophical or the things people need to be happy in his nation and figured that out and was able to articulate that in their constitution and the way that they, they govern. And I think it was just such a, a revelatory thing to see because we're speaking about communication and to be able to look at happiness and properly communicate what makes a person happy is a direct connection to how to govern a land. And then if we look more individually, we're talking about uh, being able to express this sense of how we feel to other people. So when one can learn to communicate, then you can, one, help others obviously be happy. But for more to be able to, to make yourself happy is to understand what will bring you, what, what you need to do, what steps you need to do or hobbies to that, that you're going to do to create a holistic life. And I think a lot of that stems very from very I'm definitely going to do yourself some research on Bhutan tonight for like a hundred percent. Got to, got to do more research on, I can't, so I can't speak to, can't speak to what it is and if it's working or not. It just sounds, it sounds like a good place. I mean, if it's, if, if people are happy there, I don't care to me, it never matters. Like, do I need to be, do you need to be the happiest place in the world? I, for me, it's like, I, I don't, it's like, I don't really give a shit for me. It's like, can I, can I, it, I think happiness in a way needs to be a little bit selfish in that way. It's like, I want to be happy. If, if I could be happy anywhere, then it doesn't like, I just want to be happy where I am. It's like, I don't know if you need to go to a certain place to, to specifically be happy. I, I don't know the answers. It kind of leads me to the question of really like, what is really happiness? What I've come, I'm where I stand now. I, I think I just, I only really understand if I'm happy is if I'm not, I just understand that I'm just not sad and vice versa. It's like, how do I know I'm sad? I'm not as happy. Like I only know that I was happy when I'm sad. Cause then I know that I'm no longer happy anymore. And then, and, and the opposite mm-hmm. for when I'm, yeah, for when I'm sad, right. I'm just not happy anymore. And when I'm not happy, I'm I'm sad. So that's how I can understand and appreciate it. And I wouldn't trade one for the other. It's just like accepting one of what it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. What you just said in terms of they're not telling you how to seek discomfort. They're not telling you how to be happy. Because again, there's so many people in the world, and we see the world so individually. Um, we obviously agree on certain things, but we have all have our own perspectives and the way right. that we all gain happiness and, and, you know, feel fulfilled in our lives are all so different that it's, as you said, finding someone that kind of brings you light to something that you weren't uh, aware of before, like yes theory is just bringing you to the idea of challenging your fundamental beliefs and, and getting outside of your comfort zone in whatever way that you can do that, even if it's just stepping right. outside your apartment all the way to moving to another country. I think it's brilliant what you said in terms of finding that happiness. Right, it's kind of like your, uh, whatever like way someone, that you know. So I don't you know if you find this. I mean, you're clearly extremely well read. Um, you made incredible references to so many different, so many different topics. It's like uh, super impressive. You know, it's like when someone like asks you like a question. It's like someone says like, "Oh, you got to read this book." 
And a lot of times I used to give a lot of shit to people who would do that. It's like, oh, you're telling them all the answers just in, in a book. And it's and I and I and I wish I could know exactly. And I'd apologize to them now because I don't know what their intention was. But a lot of the times it's not about necessarily this book's not going to change. It's not this book that's going to teach you. It's what this book's going to lead. Reading this book's going to may open your mind or may understand that it's not about following what's in the book. It's about understanding an idea that may lead you to another idea. It's not telling you anything. It's about what you take from it and what you want and what you want from it. it can lead you down a path. It could be something as simple as a Brene Brown book on vulnerability that can lead you to down a path to so many different thinkers. It could be a yes theory video that leads you to Wim Hof and you take on the Wim Hof method. It's something that I personally am super, I've been super interested in um, something I've been trying to implement, right? Uh, med- his meditations um, theory and as well as the cold showers I've been um, I've just slowed down a little bit, but I was challenging myself to end every shower with 15 and then building up to 30 and then to a minute of just experiencing the cold shower part of it and going out of my comfort zone and I, who doesn't love a hot shower and ending with the cold shower sucks until it doesn't it sucks the first two times you do and then you kind of go through it and you're like oh this isn't so bad i kind of actually enjoy it it's kind of really going out of the comfort zone and that you just never know where you're going to lead down to it's a really incredible journey of, of of just picking up one thing that can lead you down a crazy rabbit hole that's awesome that you've been doing the wim hof method um for anyone that doesn't know he's a science he's a sorry an adventurer who has broken barriers of climbing past the safety uh elevation in everest just in his boxers to being the longest person uh, in an ice tank for over an hour Mm. and uh, i think that's amazing that you've been able to do that um and challenge yourself but what's funny to me is that you brought up someone telling you to read a book and for me that was something that actually propelled me to get to the second yeshiva where i learned to think but in the opposite way because right. I saw it as kind of annoying, not as pick up a book and, and find uh, something amazing in it, which I agree with you is how I see it now. But I was so frustrated in my first year of Israel because it was more of a volunteer kind of place than a learning kind of place. Wow. And I loved the volunteering. I worked on a horse farm with autistic kids. But then I would go back right. and I would learn. It wasn't so stimulating and so I I, one of the last weeks I was there I went up to one of the head rabbis and I asked him for some information I asked him a question and he literally just pulled out like a book and he's like just read this and it was the most like bland experience I could find I was like I'm coming to you as a human for human connection and for human information I don't want to just open this piece of paper and read it and so that kind of made me frustrated and it made me enjoy the information that was coming from human connection in the second place so much more but now I 100% agree with you I think it was more the way they did it because opening a book it's there's a world in every single one of them I could speak about my love of literature for hours but it's it's just there's there's a world in every single one and I agree with you in terms of you never know how your life can change by picking up that one yeah, book I mean, it's, if it's shown it's to about you saying yes. correctly and not as a forceful decision with yes theory and now i know we went on a long 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 uh, exactly. traffic, but i do want to go all the way back now right you're in um you're in your university it's not working out you're planning on going to israel now you're taking you're switching your major you're going to community college then what how did where how did we get from where where you were there to today right of course and i think the idea is um not to 
look at going to Bhutan. And I think that's very relevant to something right. that Ralph Waldo Emerson says, who's a famous transcendentalist uh, philosopher and poet. And he, he says, don't on his essay in history, and he says, don't bring ruins to ruins. And he means don't bring the tattered ruins of yourself to another country, to a historical ruin. And don't think that running away or going to another country is just going to fix your happiness. Don't bring ruins to ruins. And it's not about looking at Bhutan and saying that I'm going to go live there, but looking at what makes them actually happy. And it was wonderful to see that they actually just created stronger diplomatic ties with Israel because they are looking at the technology and the way that they have their medicine and, and Bhutan is teaching them about happiness. And I think it's about, uh, as I was saying, like mentors or yes theory or just finding something outside of yourself that is articulating something yeah, the, that the, we might the, be the able some, to The thing that I just, that just came to my head is um, kind of goes full circle. It's about to what we were talking about earlier about leaders, right? Uh, people in power that, that influence us. It's more about finding... It's about finding people that teach you as opposed to tell you what to do. Seek discomfort is not tell. It's telling you to seek discomfort, but it's not telling you how to seek specifically how to seek discomfort because it's different for everybody else. And that's the important thing. It's these, right. It's don't bring ruins to ruins. Isn't telling you where to go. It's about telling you. It's not about if you don't fix, if you don't deal with what's going on inside of you, if you don't handle your baggage, no matter you can travel anywhere in the world. If you're still carrying that carrying around that baggage it's coming with you anyway right so i was leaving yeshiva university and starting at the community college because i was going to do a year of that major uh, most of my decisions over the last couple of years were kind of hasty and not researched and so i Use that year as a year to kind of get my head more on, on, on a little on tighter than it was the last uh, two years prior to that. But during that year, I had failed to look into the actual courses that I was taking in terms of the credits that I would get. And the entire year of school I did went to waste. I did not get any of my credits transferred to IDC. And that kind of closed my dream of going there because they said I would have needed to do another three years of school, basically, which is college in Israel, do the entirety of school over. And that was not going to happen for me. Um, so after a year of I went back to live at home that year and I worked on, uh, you know, kind of trying to focus on what made me a little happier in life, uh, not to the extent that I am now, but. At the end of the year, I was told, because of my lack of research, I was told you will not be getting any credit from this. And I basically paid thousands of dollars and spent uh, eight to 10 months of my life doing something that basically did not propel me any, That's gotta be any anywhere. That's, that um, has to hurt. So that was quite a disheartening a experience be because I had. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh, so that that was a, a, a bad experience only because I had just felt like I wasted a lot of time. I do want to say, though, something that was uh, redeeming about that school. I had a professor named Richard Connolly who had actually done some production for the U.N. Um, for media classes. And he was such a awesome guy. He was like late 60s, 70s, kind of a Woodstock type of dude. And he just kept talking to the class about 
how valuable information was and widening and expanding consciousness. So I did find myself walking away with valuable information. And I think that's how I kept myself from falling back into that place where I was in YU was I started to look for the smaller things uh, like uh, Professor Connolly's class. And that actually reminds me of uh, a book by Chris Hatfield, the astronaut that I read two weeks ago. And something that he speaks about throughout the whole book is sweat the small stuff. And what he means when he says that is focus on the small stuff. It's that there's so many big things to worry about that if you can actually just focus on the minutia of your life, then sometimes you can lower that anxiety and lower that that sense of existential dread, for lack of a better better word, which I was experienced, I would have been experiencing had I not valued that information after having wasted an entire year. Um, so. At the end of that, I came out feeling better than I, I thought I would. Um, but then I had to look basically after a few years of school where I was going to go after because I was in a new school and wasn't a four year. And so I had visited Zach Lennick, uh, who we'd previously spoken about in Queens. And we were, uh, it was Rosh Hashanah, the, the high holiday, and we were on the roof of a building. Um, and we were just talking and I was speaking to him about my issues that I was going through. And he very easily said, well, why don't you just move to Queens, mm -hmm. like come to Landers, uh, which is that religious institution we had spoken about earlier. And so I was like, you know what, that's a great idea, because almost all of my friends were in Queens at the time. And so I decided to go to Landers, uh, which was the quickest major, uh, quickest degree I could mm -hmm. find out of school because I had done two separate majors. Um, but it wasn't I, so. So this decision that I made was purely for the community that we were talking about, because, as we've said, the institution, the religious observance, that was not a main priority of mine, but rather to be around people that I could find support and I can find great experience with. So I decided to do that. Uh, my first semester, I worked extremely hard. I was driving into the city every other day for an internship and I was in school, but it was still extremely unfulfilling because I was now older than most of the kids in my classes. I was feeling like I was behind. Many of the, the people my age were getting jobs and making money and by comparison, which obviously nobody should do, it made me feel worse and worse. And as mm. the older I got, of course, the more money people were making um, and the seemingly fulfilled lives they were living as social media tends to show us, which usually ends to not ends up not being a correct representation of most people's lives. But basically, it, it took a, a few years for me to feel a sense of self-confidence because I was in a place again in a third school where I didn't want to be with people I didn't want to be with, except for the people in my community. Uh, and then, unfortunately, that community collapsed completely. People moved out and I had nobody in Queens. And so it became an extremely hard place for me to live. And then, thank God, a few months ago during COVID, I found Yes Theory and I found uh, I listened to your podcast with Zach on strength of relationship, and I've been trying over the last few months to create a holistic and, and meaningful, fulfilling life 
just through sweating the small stuff, as Chris, Chris Hatfield says, in terms of doing kind things for people or or just uh, all you know, just the altruism yeah, we know, spoke about with the Dolly Lava. It feels like it you were like Charlie Brown and then they were just taking the football away from you right before you kicked it. Every time you felt you were about to like get something, it just seemed to fall apart. Yeah, that's that's very much what it felt like. Every year I was going through something and and it, it kind of just collapsed and and thank God, you know, my, my brother and my mother and my, my mom's parents were you know, my grandparents were so, so supportive of that. But the the shame you feel about, you know, when you lose that sense of self-confidence and so many people around you start comparing yourself to them, then there, there, there becomes a certain shame that it's why am I not doing that? And why is all of this happening? And, and why can't I just make a decision that leads to my own happiness, which was, I guess, one of my main struggles of not understanding what made me happy going again, back to communication or, articulation i just didn't know what would make me happy yeah, and it, made, i think you touched on uh, something also that i think is relatable to a lot of people regardless of if you're at the low lows or even the middle or even if you're like semi-happy it's like when you look around you see other people like oh they're they feels like they're so much they're just ahead of you in life whether it's with a better job or they, maybe they maybe the goal they got met they're getting married maybe they had a kid i mean i even maybe they had two kids like that's like you can feel like you're behind and it, it just reinforce it can reinforce all the the negative thoughts that you have on behind i need to go fat i need to get to where they are instead of focusing on the individual's journey not everyone is made to to get there right you have to there's years and years of work that goes into it some people may find it sooner some people may take a little longer i I don't i don't know i don't really know other than that's kind of how i have to look at it Mm -hmm. i think for for myself it was deeply comparative uh especially because my my grandparents kept telling me it's something that rings in my head my saba would say you got potential kid which essentially means you have potential but you're not doing right, anything right. It. it'd be it's, easier it'd be it's easier if they you don't you're, have you're not that doing anything things, right i was thinking and about so like, that was extremely I feel like a hard. fucking failure so often even like i don't have it right now i'm not working, right, you know, working exactly. on this podcast it's great but like there are other times it's like yeah tell me i have potential one more time it's gonna drive me bananas it's like, yeah, tell me I don't have any potential and make me feel, and actually in some weird, in some sadistic, weird ways exactly. might actually make exactly. me make the person feel better. It's like, tell me I have potential and I'm not reaching it is even, it doesn't motivate, it's not a motivating factor. Exactly. It's an explanation, not an excuse. Right. It would justify your lack of action. Exactly. But uh, for me, I think it was, is, so I was being told that a lot. And then my brother who, uh, Josh Gold, I, whom I love very much, he works for LinkedIn which is awesome. He's working in San Jose and in Silicon Valley. And so that was uh, quite a comparison to have right next to me all the time, even though my family didn't necessarily see it that way. I was always comparing myself. And I think that was very detrimental. And it took seeing that it, it doesn't make you happy to do these things. And I think why sweating the small stuff has really been helping me recently is because you're comparing the big stuff you're comparing the jobs, you're comparing how their lives are. And as we've spoken about a lot of times, that doesn't tell the real story of how they feel. And I think something that I've been focusing on is what what brings me happy, as I've mentioned multiple times, is is just being able to be introspective and, and ask yourself that question and then sweating the small stuff as it's been quite snowy here in New York. And 
I found being altruistic and, and just helping dig out a couple people's cars, I walk away smiling even when I'm out of breath from the, from having to do manual labor or whatever it is. That makes me more happy than whatever else I was trying to compare myself to, whether it was a job, whether it was this. Like, do I think that job satisfaction would make me as happy as helping other people? And it's it's knowing that you don't need to compare the big stuff, but just yeah, sweat the small I don't, stuff and, I think, and focus on, I don't know. I, on what I, makes you happy. When it comes to like the small stuff versus the big stuff, I think, I think it's all true and none of it's true at the same time. It's more of like kind of whatever whatever you it's like whatever you think just pick one and choose to believe it you'll probably be more successful than myself in believing in like both it's like the micro and the macro work together it's like you need if you want the way to get to focus on the big picture stuff is to do the small stuff right it's the it's kind of like you know some people like i don't know i always think of it like as like you sometimes you just have to focus on it and other times you just have to fade the noise whatever it is the small things that you think are nodding at you just don't let it bother you and sometimes it's important to listen to it so it's interesting. Personally, I don't know if I, I have to think more about it and I'll probably go back and forth a million times on it. But I think if it works for you, then that's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's I think you are 100 percent right again in that. Uh, that's why my motto is balance, because there has to be a sense of we're uh, as humans, goal oriented individuals and goals give us a sense of purpose. Uh, and I think you need to also sweat the big stuff in terms of we need a a life that'll bring us fulfillment and you need to look at the bigger stuff in terms of who you want to be with and what you want to do. And uh, in terms of whether it's your job or your family, uh, those are, are very important big things in your life that you a hundred percent need to focus on with all your effort. But at the same time, I think it's the idea. It's almost symbiotic in that when you start comparing yourself to all those big things or to someone else's relationship, someone else's job, then it becomes a good idea to focus on the small things of what makes you happy. It's, it's, it's symbiotic in terms of you can switch off and say, my goals are the big things. But when that becomes depressing and anxiety driven because you're becoming a workaholic, it's like, no, sweat the small stuff and enjoy the half hour run you go on every day or, you know, the 10 minutes of guitar you play. So I think it's, it's a sense of balance of, I think a lot of us tend to be comparative by nature. And I think sweating the small stuff is, is just a way to bring you out. Yeah, of that. No, I think, but I think I you're think right in that. It hearing you say it again, it resonated that, a lot as more with anything in life. Breaking into my own, breaking up with what the big stuff actually means. It's how do I actually do the big stuff? It's made up of all the small stuff. It's appreciating in the moment what that 30 minute run do- impacts the rest of my day. It may make me focus better. Now, if I'm focused better, I might be in a better mood. Now, if I'm in a better mood, I can do X, Y, and Z. I can work better. I can do a better job on my project. Maybe it's schoolwork. Maybe whatever it is. It may lead you to... I always think about it like to break up a good day for me is filled up with a few things. It could be going for getting exercise, going for a walk. It could be... Usually, if I go for a walk, I exercise, I meditate, I have a... I, I reach out and speak to a friend of mine and reach out. I do something positive with work, whether it's the podcast or job stuff or something else, like maybe one or two other things. If I do all those things in, in one day, I can always look back on my day and go, that was a good day. I was I had a happy day. Like that was a good one. It wasn't a bad one for sure. And then though you have enough, you string enough of those days along, eventually the big stuff becomes reality. Whatever that big stuff is, you want to be the number one marketing agent in the world. You want to be a real estate pro, like whatever it is you do, the small stuff that goes into doing that, 
you'll get there. But if your goal and focus is just, I need to be the number one real estate agent, it can become very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think something that you, you just said there that is very important also is that the work needs to be put into it is that all those small stuff add up to the big stuff, but it takes an extreme amount of effort. And I was just speaking to my brother about this yesterday of the idea of how I realized how successful people become successful is an extreme amount of work. I was watching a masterclass Mm -hmm. on Bob Iger, who is uh, uh, the CEO of the Disney company. And he was talking about his day and he wakes up at 4.15 a.m. And after dinner with his family, he works from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And it's you don't find average people doing all of that. (laughs) It's it's just not so doable for most of us. But I think the idea of of these people are truly uh, effort driven in, in what they're doing and that we have to we life doesn't just throw itself at us in terms of success that if we want to be happy and you know taking away from being a ceo of a company if we look at it just being fulfilled in life that also takes a lot of effort in the small stuff in the big stuff if you want to have a a good relationship with your family with your spouse with your friends you know you need to have that energy and you need to focus on on what makes them happy what makes you happy what what makes them angry and, and being able to give the proper energy to all that. So I think effort is an extreme, yeah, I think that's, re- I think it's extremely important, important part when in you look at people that you want this. to emulate and understand, or maybe you're jealous of it's understanding all the work that kind of goes into becoming who those people are. I think they didn't just be, they didn't, you don't just become successful. Like well, you don't just one day decide to become successful. You one day start change. Maybe one day you take the first day, you start changing patterns in your behavior that leads you to become successful. If you start exercising, eating well, doing, working harder, uh, reading, learning, talking to more people, whatever it is that leads you on the path to become successful. You know, so many people nowadays write these self-help books or how I became successful or so many different things. One of them I really enjoy is Tim Ferriss' four-hour work week. Um, he's a great podcast. If you don't know Tim Ferriss', I highly re- recommend checking him out. You can learn almost anything by listening to one of his podcasts on so many different subjects. And he's got one right about the four hour work week. It's about how you can fit your whole week of work into a four hour period. And somebody else it does, writes a book about how you have to grind, grind, grind. The Gary Van, the, the Gary V school of thought. There's so many different school of thoughts. And all these people write about when that's because from what I understand is mm-hmm. I don't think most of them even understand how, why, why, or how they're successful. And it creates a lot of uncertainty in a lot. It can create a lot of fear in, in and of themselves. So they try and just explain it. Sometimes you don't have all the answers and that's okay too. But they try and people just, I don't know. There's a lot of those things. I, I don't know. So I read a lot. I, sometimes I'll read some of them and go like, this is interesting, but I don't think that's why he's successful. <laughs> it's like, sometimes some of them are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're trying to almost self self rationalize or self justify, because as you said, like it's extremely hard to know why anybody, first of all, to self diagnose anything and then to, to understand why anybody would be, successful is extremely hard but something you touched on is that it, it, no matter if they know what what they did or not it's just about putting putting in that effort and understanding that that they became who they were not because of necessarily maybe what they're saying but because they understood that life took a certain amount out of them whether and again Bob Iger like he understood he talked about his his family and and wanting to be around them these people have a sense of balance in in their lives whether you know even if it's 
from your job right. to your family. I think there's family. a misconception just, with balance. You, it I think people think balance is to like live 50, a fulfilled 50, life. It's not. Everyone's balance is different. Some of them it's 70-30, 75-35. Like there's so many different versions of what balance is. And uh, I don't know. I always think back to, um, you know, the thing you always hear about uh, um, everything in moderation. I like to say everything in moderation, including in moderation. Some things you need, need you can't, you shouldn't moderate. There's certain things you should go, you should go totally all in on certain things you should need. Sometimes you need to hold back, but it's understanding mm-hmm. that looking at all of it all together in its final product is the balance, right? It's not the, right. It's not everyone needs to have a balance. Like everyone's work life balance is different. Some people have different requirements and it's about finding that balance. If it's spending time with figuring out the way to spend time with family, it may not be massive amounts of hours, but it might be, what am I doing when I am spending time with my family? Am I on my phone? Am I, when I'm, and it could be taken to our level, right? And we're not the successful CEOs, but take it to us. When we're, you have a limited amount of time, you're working so hard, but you have certain times that, that you're with your friends that you have to, are you optimizing that time with them? Are you sitting on your phone, Snapchatting and Instagram and Instagram get all, or are you taking advantage of the, of that time to your best benefit? Are you spending the quality time? And then in an, only in its final product, I think, can you say call maybe if you do all that properly, can it really be fully balanced? Right. A hundred percent. I think that I was talking to my brother about this idea of, of America or the Western culture perceiving productivity as most of our value. And I think that we, we were talking about basically how you don't need to do. We all think we need to do something that we love. We have this idea that, the job we do because inherently we do it for so much of our lives that we need to do something that we love so much. And obviously that's a huge struggle because there's not so much work that you can actually love. But I think the solution that we are talking about is I think that's a fallacy. You don't need to love what you do because we're not measured by our productivity. And this is something that I'm only recently acquainted with and I'm still thinking about. I haven't experience necessarily myself um but the idea that you can have a job where you're working nine to five that you like you know it's it's somewhat fulfilling but it's not the crux of your being but then when you get outside of there if you're doing things that you find that you find make you feel fulfilled whether it's making dinner every night fresh or going on hikes or playing music I think there's a lot that we can do that can give us a fulfilled life outside of our need for certain productivity, as you're saying, is like there's that that effort. They they have an understanding of what brings them fulfillment. And it's not necessarily about becoming a workaholic, but becoming someone who is productive and can balance that with being a, a happy and purpose-driven person outside of your work is that's a really know, interesting thought I, and I think about everything like, else that life like, entails people hate their the, hate uh, cube life they call it you work at like your cubicle and you punch the clock punch the clock nine to five and all those people like they look miserable and the blame is always that they hate their job oh yeah, their life. yeah well what are they doing when they're not in their job are you doing things that you love to do right like what, what well, think about what that cube life allows you to do Right. If you work nine to five, you're not right. You have more out, right. You have more hours to do things that you might be more open to, to that you might like to do. But if you're somebody using the cube life and you're, you're not doing anything with all that time or freedom or whatever it is that allows you to do, and it doesn't fit those requirements, then it isn't, it's a lot easier to blame your work than it is to blame anything else. I don't know. I think, I think you should, I, I think you need to love what you're doing. I don't think what you're doing has to only be work, right. You should like, you should love all the things that you do. If you're going to do so, I mean, sometimes you have to do things you don't like to do. That's obviously part of life. You have to love enough of things that you're doing, what it allows you to do and taking advantage of that time. 
think if you love all the time you spend out of work and, and, and appreciate what if that if what you're doing at work allows you to do all those things, you're probably not going to mind the cube life. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've I've again, I'm not experienced because I haven't been at a nine to five for any significant amount of time. But it seems to be that what you're saying is is would hold true for me. I just think about it. And if you can, you, you have whatever job you have, but, you know, you get out of work and on your weekends, if you're in the sun, if you're in California, if you're surfing, if you're even on the East Coast, New York, beautiful mountains and forests, or if you like bowling, whatever it is you like doing, if you don't like camping, it's just being able right. to, like, I could just, I, I want to smile just thinking about sunshine, you know, <laughs> it's just the winter. And I think that idea of if, if what you're saying is if you're living that, that cute cuticle life and you go home and you grab a beer and watch TV till you pass out every night and do that on the weekends, you're going to hate your life. You're not going to feel fulfilled. But if you leave that work every day and put it out of your mind and be with people that you love and doing things that you truly enjoy, it would almost be hard. I, I don't want to be reductionist towards people that, that right. don't enjoy those things because I do know sitting for eight hours a day somewhere you don't like is detrimental which i do which is why i do think you need to do something you at least like you can't hate your work if you're going to be doing it 45 to 55 hours a week if not more but uh i do think that if you truly understand yourself and can uh, obviously again which is extremely hard put in the effort to live a fulfilled life outside of work i think that your life will be a lot less depressing and you'll see work as a lot more fulfilling i think that's really well when you can incorporate Um, it into that i want to give you now the final parting shots um if there's anything we didn't anything we didn't talk about that you're interested in talking about anything you want to just touch on the floor i'll give you the floor now um sure thank you i i think there's one thing that we didn't touch on which is uh, i think is a good thing just to speak about in our current environment which is a little bit of information can do a lot of harm and that's something that um, that has been told to me. Um, and I think that it is extremely potent in that I think we all in the world where we get news at the, the tip of our fingers, you know, so instantly, everything's about instant gratification. And I think we all look at, at all of these news sources as true and we let that affect our lives so much. And there's an MIT study that says that fake news spreads seven times as fast as real news. And I think when we have that little bit of information that may not even be true and we take that and integrate it, it can be at a detriment to ourselves and adds to a polarization and a disconnect between human beings because we take this idea that I know more, again, that idea of ego, that I've learned this, I've learned that, and therefore I know more or disagree with you about it. And I think I just want to say is an important point. I think what we know, you know, the wise man knows that he knows nothing. I think we could all understand that there's a lot more to learn and that if we were able to be more open and vulnerable to each other, we could progress as a global community and even as a community and, and your and and progress your relationships just around yeah, you. If we can all admit that's an incredible a little more idea. that we think, can learn from true. each other. I think a little bit of information can do a lot of harm. I think when you uh, the fallacy 
of false experts of not only the fallacy of experts, the fallacy of people who hear one thing and believe they're now and they know everything about it, the entire thing that they've never heard of before two seconds ago. They then just become those things. It's it's they become you become very powerful and authoritative on, on those ideas. It's very it's very strange. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do anyone any good. And you just spread it, and you kind of and anyone goes off half cock believing it. And it's kind of mm-hmm. you need. It's important to take the right. time to, to really think. But a lot of people don't feel like they have the time or the ability to really want to think about a lot of things. They want to basically we want to become so optimized that we just believe it already for like it's already made for us. It's it's a very dangerous. It's a very dangerous thing. I think it it, it also will come even more full circle of the idea of communication. Um, it breaks communication cycles. It doesn't. It doesn't breed positive communication. Um, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Something for me that I was really that that was giving me a little bit of a hard time mentally was seeing all of the news outlets, whether it was Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, no matter what spectrum you were seeing. It was all about like doomsday. Everybody was, everything is blowing up. Everything is going as wrong as it could. And I was sitting with my brother and, and we were talking about this and he kind of said like, what is telling you all of this? Right. Like, this what Are you seeing this in reality? And that's also something going back to yes theory that, that they try and propel the idea of a stranger is just someone you haven't met, like connect with the people around you and you'll see the lack of polarization. There still is a lot of it, but when you can talk about the big things and not just the the small things and learn to be open to each other, you, you start to have a little bit more of, of communication and, and just a little bit more of, of an openness and progress towards each other. And you can understand what we see on the news right. is not, how most of us think and act and that really most of us want to be happy and want to have a progressed unified society and i think if we can just be and i more think the best way to find to that out other, is we to, would all see you're that sitting on that park bench you're in that more. situation where there's a stranger sitting next to you reach out to them talk to them find out what they think exchange ideas exchange stuff it doesn't have to be big can be big can be small that's how you find out, right? At the end of the day, we're all hum- we're all living the same human. We're all living a human experience. We all make we come from different places. We have different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences. But at the end of the day, we share that common idea that we're all we're all humans. At the end of the day, I think by doing that, you can create you can bridge the gap. All right, Mitch, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed chatting with you. you I totally a lot agree. to think about. I know my brain's going to be swirling with I, all this, I, all these ideas, all these thoughts, and I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you for having me on. These conversations are always stimulating and you give me things to think about as well. And I think it's an amazing platform again to facilitate such important conversations. I appreciate that. Thank you so much to Mitch Gold for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot about seeking discomfort and vulnerability and so much more. I know this episode was longer than the usual ones that I do, but when you have a guest like Mitch, honestly, that could have been a four hour episode. And I just had to find a place to stop, but I'm sure he'll be back on quite soon. If anybody out there is interested in coming onto the podcast, you can reach me at don't worry about a podcast at gmail.com or on my Facebook or Instagram pages. Don't worry about a podcast. Give a follow if you can. Please subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast. It would mean a lot to me. And also, if you wouldn't mind, maybe share it with somebody in your life that you think might benefit or enjoy the conversations. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you next week.